Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash DEU. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Beringer Ingelheim International GmbH. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Drs. Peter Lin and Omar Asmani. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Dr. Peter Lin from the Canadian Heart Research Centre in Toronto, Canada. Welcome to this activity on maintenance therapy and COPD, optimizing benefit with inhalers when ability to inhale is compromised. Joining me this, uh, for this discussion is my colleague Omar Usmani from the National Heart and Lung Institute, Imperial College, London, UK. So welcome, Omar. In this activity, we will discuss how choosing the right device can have a great impact on our patient's control of their COPD. And we will also talk about inhaler technique and the importance of teaching and assessing our patient's technique. So Professor Osmani, how come the device is so important, almost as important as the medications that they're carrying? Peter, thank you very much for asking the question um, and something that I talk about um, a lot. We are unique as respiratory prescribers. Every day we put pen to paper and we actually write a device together with the drug. In respiratory medicine, our treatment consists of two parts, the drug and the device. Now, in med school, we were always taught about the drug, the pharmacology, the receptors, but none of us were taught about the device. And what we really need to do is understand that there are two components to the treatment of the patient in front of us. So a lot of us say we've got a myriad of devices out there. How are we going to choose the right device for the right patient? And we will come to that. But there are actually simply four main categories. So 50 years ago, um, the initial inhaler device was a PMDI, pressurized meter dose inhaler. Then we had evolution and we had dry powder inhalers. And what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years is a soft mist inhaler and also nebulizers that have become smaller in size and therefore um, patients can engage with them better. So each device has its pros and cons. And the key thing is that there isn't one device that fits all, is right for everyone. So what we need to do is just understand the differences and work out what is the right device for the patient sitting in front of us. Yeah, that's interesting because a lot of times we don't even think about the device and we just write out the prescriptions for our patients. So I think that's a very important point. Let's go to a case scenario to kind of prove that this is very important. Uh, this is a 75-year-old COPD patient who visits the clinic, complaining of shortness of breath. Uh, she has arthritis and has not been able to properly inhale using her dry powder device. She's had no fever or chills. Her only other past medical history includes hypertension, for which she's using lisinopril, metoprolol, and hydrochlorothiazide. She does admit to not adhering to any of her medications. So obviously, when any patient comes in, we always think about shortness of breath and cardiac. So let's assume that we've ruled out cardiac disease. Omar, how do we take care of this patient? It's a lady with COPD who actually um, is not able to take a device properly um, and is not adhering. So I think there are key three steps, aren't there? First, what we need to do is address the adherence, address the medication adherence, um, and talk to our patients, understand really um, what is it that um, is um, not allowing them to engage with the device. Um, is it the inability to actually use the device 
inhalation technique? Are they using the right inhalation technique? Maybe they haven't been taught this properly, so they're not using it properly and they're not getting satisfaction or therapeutic benefit. And therefore they think, well, you know, I don't want to engage and hence there's adherence. Or importantly, has the patient got the correct peak inspiratory flow rate? Mm, that's interesting. So you bring up peak inspiratory flow rate. I don't think I've heard that since maybe medical school. And even then I didn't hear it. So what is peak inspiratory flow rate? Yeah, it's a really important um, physiological maneuver that we need to think about when we see patients with COPD who we are prescribing devices because it helps us decide which is the right device for the patient. So what do I mean? Well, it's the maximal flow during a forced inspiratory maneuver with or without resistance. A lot of inhalers, dry powder inhalers, have different types of resistance, so low, medium and high. So we need to have an inspiratory maneuver to work with the resistance of the device to actually pull the drug out of the device, break that drug up and get that powder past the throat and into the lungs. So you need the inspiratory force. Now, a lot of devices have a minimal threshold that they need to be um, activated to give the therapeutic benefit. And then you also have an optimal threshold. And so what you need to do is make sure that your patient is able to achieve the optimal threshold. And if they don't, then it's suboptimal. Now, we know that a lot of devices require high peak inspiratory flow rates, some as high as 60 litres per minute, some 90 litres per minute. And a lot of our patients with COPD, they've got weak muscles, a bit of cardiac failure, osteoporosis, kyphosis. They may not be able to generate the forces to get that inspiratory flow, to be able to break the powder and get that powder out of the device and into the lungs. Ah, so that means they can't actually get the powder into the aerosolized state and then they can't breathe it into their lungs, which means that there's no medicine being delivered. So this is very important. And so based on that, um, because it's so important, are there any clinical outcomes uh, for our patients with COPD if their peak inspiratory flow is not good enough? So we've recognized absolutely, Peter, over the last few years that peak inspiratory flow is important. Um, important for us to get an idea of whether the patient can achieve it to get therapeutic benefit from the device. So what you see here is a really nice study that was done by Chi Lo um, in Jill Ho-Ha's group. They um, looked at patients with an acute exacerbation of COPD who were admitted to hospital, and then they were recovering over three or four or five days. And on the day of discharge, they stratified one group to receive a dry powder inhaler to go home with, and another group, they actually had a nebulizer. What they looked for was the readmission rates. So 30-day readmission rates and 90-day readmission rates. And what you see highlighted in the red box is the 30-day readmission rate. And what they found was that the patients who were given a dry powder inhaler device actually had a greater 30-day readmission rate than those that were given a nebulizer. So why is this? Well, maybe that acute patient on the ward who's coming with an exacerbation of COPD for whatever cause, an infection, um, heart failure, um, viral exacerbation, they're recovering at three, four, five. We're encouraged now to send them to the community, aren't we? And maybe at day four or five, they haven't fully recovered. So their respiratory muscle strength is relatively weak. So maybe they don't have the oomph, the inspiratory force, the inspiratory flow rate to activate the dry powder inhaler device. Um, but they're given that. 
and therefore there is a greater tendency for them to readmit. With a nebulizer or a soft mist inhaler or a meat dose inhaler, these are wet sprays, the patient just needs to inhale slowly and gently and comfortably. What about the inhalation technique? Why is that so important as well? So Peter, inhalation technique does actually matter. Let's have a look at the graph to illustrate the point. So we've got patient A and patient B. Now, both of them achieve the same peak inspiratory flow, but the question is, how do they get there? Now, patient A has a fast acceleration, gets there quickly, and is able to maintain their breath over a period of time, as shown on the x-axis. So if you look at the shaded area, the area under the curve for patient A, it's greater. There's greater dose delivery. Now, in contrast, patient B gets to the peak inspiratory flow, but slower. So the acceleration is lower and the period of time is also slightly shorter. So look at the area under the curve. Patient B has less dose delivery than patient A. So inhalation technique is important. So they shouldn't breathe in and breathe out quickly. They need to maintain it and they need to do it quickly from the start in order to get the powder out of a dry powder inhaler device and get therapeutic benefit from it. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about the overlap between what I'm breathing and the device in terms of the medication coming out. So I guess that's why the slow mist makes sense because it stretches out that window of overlap. Absolutely, Peter. With the soft mist inhaler, um, the device does all the work. The patient just needs to breathe gently and slowly. So your point made is a very pragmatic point. Now, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. Now, I'm, I'm older, so maybe I've missed some medical school days. Is this common knowledge, you know, the technique and so on and so forth, is that is that common knowledge? Am I just behind the ball, or behind the game, so to speak, or uh, is it uh, something that we need to work on? Peter, it's neither of those. Age isn't a factor, and you're certainly not behind the ball in knowledge. The problem is it is across the board. So this is a systematic review that shows in the four disciplines who are involved in inhaler management, physicians, primary and secondary care specialists, nurses, nursing students, pharmacists, pharmacy students, and also physiotherapists, PTs. Across the four disciplines involved in inhaler management, knowledge is really poor. So the problem is, is we don't have the knowledge to be able to train our patients properly. And what they found in this systematic review actually was that when you combine all these um, uh, healthcare professionals together in over 6,000, only 12% collectively knew correct inhalation technique. Put another way, nine out of 10 of us do not know about correct inhalation technique. Therefore, we cannot impart that knowledge to our patients. Therefore, our patients do not have the correct maneuver. Therefore, there may be suboptimal control or they may not adhere because they don't get the right information to get the therapeutic benefits. So it's actually a patient safety issue here. Yeah, so that means I'm not alone. Unfortunately, being part of this large majority is a bad thing. So I think we need to move so that we, we end up learning more about this as well. Absolutely, Peter. So here you can see um, some more data that actually, when you look at the individual inhaler errors, again, physician's knowledge is not great. So under 50% identified inhale deeply and forcefully as the most significant step in the inhalation maneuver that's required for a dry powder inhaler device. 
just over a quarter of us checked patient inhalation technique. Every patient who's on an inhaler device, we need to spend a little bit of our time saying, okay, you're on an inhaler. Let me see which one. How are you using it? Oh, I see that there's an error there. Maybe we need to think about another device or let's just check X, Y, and Z. So we need to, and I use the term, be device detectives. We need to know about inhalers in order to get the best out of our patients with respect to their engagement with the device and their improvement. And also, if you look at the last statistic, much the same as the previous slide here, only 14% knew adequate knowledge of inhaled therapy. So unfortunately, prescribers' knowledge of inhalers and inhalation technique really still remains poor. Yeah, so as soon as we learn, then we can impart that onto our patients and have good outcomes. So I think that's important for us. Now, we know that adherence is really important. What are the factors that affect patient adherence to these medications and devices? So let's just simply think of three buckets or three areas. We've got the patient, who's the centre, we've got the society around, and then we've got the treatment. And you can see in these three buckets, there are different elements that we try and pick up on the consultation. Now, time today doesn't permit me to go through all of these areas, but what we need to be um, cognizant of is that we can hone in on certain areas. So with the patient, um, health beliefs, um, self-efficacy, um, as we've seen in the previous case where they didn't think they were getting benefit, possibly because they weren't taught the right procedure by the healthcare professional. Societal aspects. Um, are we training um, our patients? Device training, you can see there. And then the treatment, um, the method of administration, the dosing regimen. So patient, society, treatment, they all affect adherence to devices in our patients with COPD. And if we take care of that, then the patients do better. They're less likely to end up in hospital, which is a good outcome for everybody. So I guess if we go back to my patient, um, we now know that she's not adherent, so we need to help her with her adherence. Uh, perhaps if we assess her technique as well as device, we can now match her up better with a device where she will actually feel benefit. And if she feels benefit, then of course the adherence will be better because she can breathe better and she'll link it up that when I take my medication properly, my puffers properly, everything will be good. So so in summary, we have three components. Choose the appropriate medication for your patients. Choose the appropriate inhaler to deliver that medication. And make sure that there's good inhalation techniques so that the patients actually get the benefits of the medication. And if we do all of these three things, then the patient will have benefit. We will keep them out of hospital, avoid exacerbations, and make sure that our patients are well-treated and controlled. Uh, so thank you, Omar, for this, for bringing us a topic that I don't think many of us know anything about. You showed us that 90% of us don't know much about it. But now that we're aware, we now have another tool that we can help our patients with. So I appreciate all your time and effort on this topic. Thank you very much. In this second presentation, we will talk about how to diagnose and assess patients and then how to select which device is best for your particular patients. So let's start off with a case. So we have a 70-year-old male who uh, calls the clinic and complains of cough and shortness of breath while walking upstairs at home. Uh, he's been smoking since he was 18. His cough has been persistent for almost a year. He does have diabetes and he has hypertension or borderline hypertension, uh, and he has had recurrent lower respiratory tract infections in the past. He is on metformin and atenolol, uh, and he's not able to visit the clinic because of the pandemic restrictions. So for today, I know that first thing we're thinking about is cardiac disease. Let's assume that we've ruled out cardiac disease in this particular case. So Professor Usmani, let's start off in normal times. In other words, before the pandemic, how would you make the diagnosis of COPD for this patient? 
Thanks, Peter. So there are a lot of clues in the history, and we've all been told that the diagnosis comes from the history. So recurrent respiratory tract infections. We'd like to know a little bit more information about that. How often? How many a year? When did they first start? And also, um, what was the treatment there? Long-time smoker, so at least we've got 50 years and want to know a little bit about the smoking pack history there. Um, and then we know that he's got diabetes. I mean, he knows he's got high blood pressure. So if the diagnosis is COPD, there's a suggestion there may be comorbidities there. And as you know, COPD is a systemic disorder, systemic inflammation. So the clues are there in the history, but we can divide it, I think, into three areas, can't we? So we've talked about the presence of symptoms, as I've just um, commented, and then we have spirometry. And yes, it's been difficult for us to undertake spirometry in the past 12, 18 months, but we would, as you ask, pre-pandemic, um, uh, utilise spirometry, and there we'd look at the forced expiratory volume in one second, the FEV1, and we'd also look at the FVC, the forced vital capacity. So we ask our patients to take a deep breath in, and then breathe out as hard and fast as possible and keep going, keep going until they can squeeze their lungs and breathe out no more. And then we can make the diagnosis with the spirometry definition that you can see here. So FEV1 divided by FVC, the ratio is less than 0 0.7 um, and the rest ratio is less than and the lower limit of normal. And you can actually find that on the readouts with um, the printout that comes um, from the spirometry machine. That's great. So I think that's a very important thing as to how to diagnose them. So once you've diagnosed a patient with COPD, what kind of tools are you using or can we use to assess severity of their COPD? Yeah, that's a really important question. And that's actually what matters to our patients, doesn't it? It's the impact of the disease on their quality of life, um, rather than, to be honest, um, what their FEV1 value is, which is what we tend to look at. And what we have been using in COVID times are the Medical Research Council, the MRC. And so let's just walk through that. You've got different grades. You've got grade one, it goes up to grade five. Grade one is uh, mild, and then you go up to grade five, which is severe. And you can see that it's the degree of breath related to their activity. Now, we've got the COPD assessment test score or the CAT score. And you can see here, we can get our patients to fill this out before we have the consultation and we can get an idea of what their CAT score is. And um, the various questions are asked really related to how is your COPD? Yeah, that's good. It's kind of like a blood pressure cuff, right? We can follow the numbers and see how well they're doing. And I like the MRC score. I always ask them, can you walk at the same speed as other people your age. And if they say, no, 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 I can't do that, it pegs them already as being in trouble. So these are, these are very useful tools that we can use uh, even remotely, you know, seeing how this person couldn't come in. Now that we know that he has COPD and we know the severity of the COPD, how do we go about deciding on the device to use? Because that seems to be very important. How do you go about deciding which device to prescribe for this patient? Thanks, Peter. And I like the way you've posed the question. You've said, what is the right device? So we've actually not talked about drug yet, although we know there are two components, the device with the drug, but I always start off with the device. So here it's the ACT on inhalers algorithm, assess, choose, and train. So a lot of primary care physicians, indeed secondary care physicians say, well, look, 10, 15 minute consultation, it's really busy. How can we sort this all out in our finite period of time? Well, in one minute, using this algorithm, you can work out the right device for the right patient. So what do we do? Well, I ask my patients, can you lift the chin up? Can you breathe out? Really important to get our COPD patients to breathe out before they engage with the device. Why? Because they all have relative degrees of hyperinflation. We need them to breathe out so they've got enough air to breathe in. Then I ask them, can you inhale slowly, comfortably, naturally, steadily, 
and gently for five seconds. And then can you do a breath hold pause? And if they can demonstrate that in front of me in the clinic, then I'll consider using a soft mist inhaler or a wet aerosol, you know, a meter dose inhaler. Now, I also ask my patients, can you lift your chin up? Because that flops the tongue away, opens the airway up, just like basic life support. Can you breathe out? Important, we just talked about hyperinflation. And then can you breathe in quickly, forcefully, deeply for at least three seconds. And what I'm looking for in the clinic is I'm not using any um, gadgets uh, to record numbers. What I'm looking for is tensing of the neck muscles, the scalene muscles, secondary muscle of respiration, tensing of the intercostals, secondary muscle of respiration, and rising of the diaphragm. So I'm looking for these three things and making sure the patient will actually do this for at least three seconds. If I can see this, then I know they've got the inspiratory muscle strength to be able to generate air flows, to be able to activate a dry powdery inhaler device. Why? Because you need good, optimal peak inspiratory flow rate. So I've assessed I've chosen the device and then I train, train, train. And certainly again in the last 12 to 18 months, I've been using videos in my consultations and then I've been pinging them to their mobile devices or indeed to their email accounts so they can continue to reinforce their training while they're at home. That's fantastic because that's a great assessment without a machine. I guess that's the way you put it and no gadgets. So that way we can assess patients even remotely, if we had a video link, we can do all that. Uh, I like the way you express yourself in terms of doing that with such enthusiasm. So we can do that either on a video link or if we ask the caregiver or the daughter or the son to watch them, then we can get some information back. So that's really, really important in terms of our assessment of our patient. Let's go back to the technique. You know, you were talking about technique is really important and you were saying that you're training them. So what exactly are you training and why is that training so important? No, really good question. So why is the training important? Well, let's look at the maneuver. For dry powder inhaler devices, you need three steps. The first step is the patient needs to inhale forcefully and deeply. Why? To pull the drug off the lactose molecule. A lot of dry powder inhaler devices have the drug attached to the lactose molecule. The lactose molecule, the sugar molecule, is keeping the drug stable. So you have to have the inspiratory strength, the inspiratory flow, and the acceleration to pull the drug off. Secondly, the inspiratory strength to break that powder up into smaller powder particles. Thirdly, the inhale flow volume over time to take those powder particles past the throat and give them the best opportunity of reaching the lung. Do you want to take us through the, the sort of the checklist that you go through uh, in terms of good technique? And that way we would know what the good template looks like and then we can maybe impart that onto our patients. Absolutely. So we've talked about the inhalation flow, but there are seven steps here. Again, it can be simply undertaken as long as we know we need to carry these through. So preparation, check that the patient is actually preparing. They may have the perfect inhalation technique, but if they're not preparing the device properly, then that perfect inhalation technique is really not going to help them. Prime the device. They need to open the cap. Often patients don't open the cap. We need to make sure they exhale. All our COPD patients should lift the chin up and they should exhale. Exhale because they all have relative degrees of hyperinflation. The mouth, we need to make sure that their mouth fits the mouthpiece properly. If there's a gap, it's not going to help. Inhale. We've talked about inhalation, slow and steady, quick and deep. And then they do need to have a breath hold. The breath hold is needed after they've inhaled for at least three up to five seconds. Why? That gives you opportunity of the drug to really get into the lungs before you then have the exhalation phase. And we need to make sure that they close their cap, 
to keep the drug stable and then repeat if it's two puffs from that device. So seven simple steps, Peter, to actually make sure that our patients get the best out of their device. That's great. I mean, even though you say seven simple steps, to me, there's light bulbs going off as I see my patients doing all the wrong things because I haven't corrected them about it. But this is fantastic because now the patients are getting medication in. And I like the way you talk about this chin up because most of my elderly patients are looking down and that's their position that they're in. So I, I think those are really, really good, important tips that we can now share. Now, how do we manage this patient over time? So we've made the diagnosis, we know about severity, we've selected devices. How do we manage and monitor these patients over time? So again, the inhaler opportunity, that's what I say. Any patient with an inhaler, we need to have the inhaler opportunity. What do I mean? We need to ask them, using your inhaler, everything okay? Any problems? Let me have a quick check. Oh, I see one or two things aren't right. Do you know what? Let's just try and correct those. So we need to be device detectives. And here you can see the goal directive and essentially we review, we assess, we adjust and you can see in assess, the first point there is assess inhaler technique and medication adherence. And in adjust, you can see the second point there is if they're not using the device properly, then switch the inhaler device. So it's nice to actually see that that is ingrained within the management cycle that you see here. Yeah, that's great. I, I remember talking to a pilot and they said, we never fly straight. We constantly making course corrections. And I think this is what this is all about, making course corrections for our patients. And as they get older, maybe their needs are different. And as you're pointing out, let's see if the device needs to be changed uh, as we're managing these patients over a long period of time. So let's go back to our patients. So now we've got probable diagnosis of COPD based on what you said about the history. Uh, and we're going to educate this patient about the proper inhalation technique with those seven steps. We're going to select an appropriate inhaler that will match with his abilities. And that way we can actually deliver the medication. So I like the way you've put it that all of those steps are actually ahead of the actual selection of the medication. That makes it a working and winning formula uh, for our particular patients. So in summary, for better management of COPD, it is very important to get proper diagnosis of COPD get the diagnosis right, and then choose the right medication, and then choose the right device to deliver that medication, and make sure that patients have the right inhalation technique so they will have the benefit of the therapies that you prescribe for them. And hopefully, they will avoid exacerbation and have good control of their COPD. So Omar, thank you very much for all your time and your expertise. Um, you've made a fairly um, non-important subject, I think, in most people's minds, very important, and it shows us how much of a difference this can make for our patients. So thank you very much, Omar. Thanks. Thank you very much, Peter. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.